the one universal part of the pig that seems to marry itself with almost every other protein or vegetable is the pork fat. Um, it has a, I don't know what it is, this mythical flavor that just, and texture that seems to enrich and improve most things that it comes into contact with. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Life has a funny way of sneaking up on you. The most magnificent moments can come out of nowhere and alter your path. A direction you may never have considered, but one that enhances your life experiences moving forward. With plans to become a scientist, Mike Eggert was on the cusp of doing a PhD in wildlife management when a gig in a kitchen gave him an unexpected appetite for cooking professionally. How does someone about to do their PhD in wildlife management become a chef? Oh, so it's a funny story. It's a long story. Um, the whole time I was at university, I worked as a kitchen hand or a, a cook. And my partner at the time suggested that perhaps I liked it a little more than my other vocation. And she suggested before I endeavoured to do a four, six or eight year PhD that maybe I should, you know, look into cooking. And so I had a friend at the time, uh, Matthew Thompson, who was cooking at the Dolphin Hotel before Morris took it over. And he was going to go open his own place in the city. We were quite good drinking buddies. And so we thought that would make a good relationship for me to start an apprenticeship. So um, he helped me with signing up for TAFE and doing all that sort of stuff. And I decided that I'd commit to doing a, a three-month minimum. And if I liked it, I'd stick with it. And if not, I could come back to my PhD. Um, I think I did one service as an apprentice and loved it and knew straight away that I was never going to come back to anything else. Um, funnily enough, though, the, the PhD that I was going to do was an epidemiology study on the effects that feral pigs would have on domestic livestock if diseases like foot and mouth got into Australia. So, um, <clears throat> Well, it's being the, with the wildlife management, it sounds like you could potentially be a pig farmer. Is that something you've entertained? I, it is actually. Uh, I'm a, a big fan of changing jobs and sort of retraining. So I sort of went from being a scientist into being a chef and it's been about 15 years now. So I've been looking at the next chapter and something that combined the two would be farming and I love the idea of keeping all the knowledge that I've learned from both of those things and then learning something completely different and challenging myself. So yeah, um, for me, the next chapter is I would like to be in primary production. So, uh, and pigs, I'm, I'm fascinated with pigs. I just think they're fantastic. I think the, the production of pigs and, you know, small pig farms, just awesome. I just think they're the best animals. Well, tell us why. What's, what's the fascination with pigs? Uh, one, I, I'm fascinated with their appearance. I just think they look great, you know, and I think that, you know, if you're going to be a, a phony hipster farmer, then it's really important that the animals that you, you know, put on your social media platform, you know, fit the part. So um, unfortunately, I'm not a, a fifth generation Australian sunburnt farmer. I wish I was. I wish I had that ingrained in me. I wish I was, you know, able to pull a tractor apart and 
build it back together with just a wrench and a pocket knife. But unfortunately, I don't have those skills yet. Um, so I think whatever I do will be on a smaller scale. And I think that you want to have a, a really true and a really fair relationship with what you're working with and feel a sense of pride and a real sense of, you know, um, worth that what you're doing is good. So for me, that's one of the, the livestock that I'd be really proud to be a part of and really proud to work with. I want to talk about your career, but, you know, there, you do actually, first of all, it'd be good to have a look at the fact that you like to make small goods as well and you've done that in um, in your restaurants and the pig obviously is vital for that kind of thing. Is What's important in a pig for you when you're making small goods? Well, it's funny, isn't it? It seems to have a magic quality that not no other protein on earth really can encapsulate um, and it, it's kind of all linked to its fat and you know yes the flesh is great and the skin's great and it's a great product as it is but the one universal part of the pig that seems to marry itself with almost every other protein or vegetable is the pork fat um, it has a I don't know what it is this mythical flavor that just and texture that seems to enrich and improve most things that it comes into contact with. So, you know, like we were making a, a turkey mortadella just so we could make a white mortadella, but it was 60% pig fat, you know, with turkey breast. And it, 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 it's, it tasted fantastic and you could still taste the turkey, you know, and then if you lean on something like a classic mortadella, which was, you know, white pork meat with pork fat, it, really took on the pork fat flavor so it's it's fantastic the way it's sort of versatile and you know able to be used with other things one of the things that i've appreciated eating in various incarnations of restaurants that you've had over the years is the nduya that you make what's the secret to making a really good nduya so the secret to making a really good nduya is to be a much more patient and better chef than I am. <laughs> the The secret to our induya is we use all the same products, but we actually cook our pork jowls. So as opposed to it being a wet fermented um, salami, uh, we cook our pork uh, jowls and then we mince them after they're cooked and we ferment our sauce. So um, it gives it a really unique sort of flavor and one of the things it does is allows us to control the final product and the final flavor because it's just like making a dish. So you can adjust the seasoning, you can adjust the level of fermentation, you can adjust the level of chili. Um, I bow down to the people that have the, the patience and the skill and maybe the cojones to roll the dice on 100 kilos of endure and hope it comes out tasting fantastic. You know, um, for me, we were doing that originally when we were fermenting it and there was quite a lot of um, errors or quite a lot of products that I would say weren't as consistent or up to standard. And then one day, um, myself and Gemma, who I was working with at the time, we decided we'd cook it first and then see what we could make from it. And it was fantastic and, and really, really well received. You say that you like to adapt and change and you know, pig farming may be down the track for you. Is, is that how the pin bone idea uh, eventuated this sort of pop-up that you did many iterations of. Um, was that was that that sort of feeling to get out of the sort of normal food uh, and kitchen environment? Yeah, 100%. I 
I think Pimbo in, in its infancy was probably like 25% arrogance, um, 25% curiosity and sort of 50% stupidity. Um, I think the, I think we we were maybe the three of us, Barry, my sister, Gemma Whiteman, the other chef that I worked alongside with, I think we were ambitious and I think we were maybe a little bit arrogant uh, and we just we felt like perhaps there was a gap in Sydney for people who just genuinely wanted to do fun things and do interesting things. Uh, and we were, I think, maybe to our credit, wise enough to never commit to um, things like leases, long-term leases and, and big spends so that we kept ourselves free to be able to do what we wanted and really put our focus on the customer. Um, the in-house joke was that Pinbone was always a, a non-for-profit organisation and we were 100% successful in that ambition. We never made a cent. <laughs> um, but we had we had a fantastic time doing it and we learnt so much and it gave us such a great sense of satisfaction and, and um, you know, self-worth to be able to make really long-lasting friendships with our clientele and our suppliers and do things our own way and really have fun and, and really enjoy the the best bits of hospitality. Um, there's better operators than us in the world and especially in Sydney who managed to do both, make money and live that same dream. But for us, you know, we only managed one part of it, but I was really proud of that that side of things, you know, and really happy that we could have that sort of curiosity and investigative style of cooking and doing service. It was really fun. You mentioned that you started your apprenticeship at the Dolphin, um, but what's some of the really pivotal moments in your career in the venues that you worked with that sort of um, stamped who you are as a chef? Yeah, I remember reading a review uh, for Oscillate Wildly in a local Glee paper and it was about five lines and at the end of the review, I don't remember much of the like the rest of the, but the last line said, uh, 24-year-old doing what he wants and um, impressing the hell out of us. And I thought, shit, that sounds pretty good. Uh, and so I rung around and found out who the hell the 24-year-old was. It turned out to be Dan Puskas and I got myself a trial and got myself a job at Oscillate Wildly. And then from there, I went from being a guy that just really, really loved cooking and loved food and, you know, was probably pretty arrogant, thought he was way too good for his own boots. Uh, I got a real lesson in humility and also, you know, what it was to be in the Sydney food scene. And, you know, I think Dan Puskas really pushed me into the food culture of Sydney and introduced me to basically everybody that came out of those fantastic kitchens of Tetsuya, you know, Mark and Rockpool, you know, and there was a, a real core group of fantastic young male and female chefs that had done the hard yards and I got introduced to them. And, you know, he really steered me in the right direction, showed me around the world who was doing cool things and, you know, really taught me some great stuff. And then, you know, he was the one that spurred me to come and work at Sepia when it was opening. And, you know, he couldn't speak highly enough of Martin Ben and, you know, his influence on him. And, and he thought it'd be a fantastic formative, you know, move for me as a young, you know, professional. So I, I took that opportunity. Um, he vouched for me uh, for a position that was way beyond my capabilities. And then, just put me in the hot seat basically and just grilled me until I caught up. So it was a fantastic way to learn quick. 
What was it like working there? Oh, it was great. It was really hard. It, it was a really great kitchen. Like it was really fucking tough. And, you know, looking back on it now, you can see Specky was finding his own feet, you know, coming back from overseas, trying to have his own voice, um, find a, a niche that was, you know, a fine dining world that he hadn't really known because he'd left Sydney and then, you know, I was there for the first year of sepia and I think it took off really well after I left. I was clearly holding him back <laughs> um, and it, it changed itself. You know, you could see that every day. He had a very inquisitive mind. He had a very a driven focus, um, you know, and, and for him it was about finding the voice for that restaurant. And, you know, as junior chefs in that kitchen, you learnt a lot. Uh, it was a really... You know, it was a really fast year for me. Like, um, and I, I really loved it. I loved him as a person. You know, he was a good guy to work for. Uh, and I left because at the time, you know, there was nothing wrong with the kitchen. There was nothing wrong with the environment. But I, I personally just felt I was missing something from the kind of chef that I wanted to be. And I, I didn't want to be a fine dining chef. You know, I'm too big, too ugly, too messy. I wanted to be a bit more of a, you know, a, a nonna. Uh, and I had James Parry, who'd worked at um, Oscillate Wildly, had introduced me to Matt Lindsay, who was the current head chef at Billy Guong, and I'd had a couple of meals there, and I was just so impressed with the the way they were doing food and also the produce that they were using and the, the relationships and stuff, and I remember I had a, a dish that Matt Lindsay did, which was just pickled cucumbers with a smoked oyster, and caramelized pork belly wow, and fresh ginger and mint. And I just, it was such a simple little salad. Far out, it was a good dish, you know. Uh, and I just remember thinking that that's the kind of food I want to do. So I left and I went to work at, at Billy Kwong and I did two years there and that's where I met Gemma. And she was the, the hardest working, most tenacious chef I'd ever seen. I was so impressed. She was 21, I think, at the time and she was basically running the kitchen you know, most nights of the week. She was a fantastic chef to work with and that's where our friendship and our careers joined up. So that was probably the next big influence, you know, just watching how talented she was at such a young age and how level-headed. And, you know, I remember seeing her on the first night. She's small of stature and, you know, very chill person. And I remember her first busy Saturday night, I got rostered on and she was on the pass at Billy Kwong. It was so old school, handwritten dockets, wooden pegs, clothesline, pass, two woks, a fryer and a steamer. And I just remember watching her cook with her left hand, you know, chop sashimi with her right hand, call the pass, send the food, plate the dishes and just took total control of what was a manic and frantic paced restaurant. You know, it was 45 seats and we'd still managed to do 180 covers, you know, and she just used to do it blindfolded. She was just so good at it. So that was that stage. And then, if, I, if you want me to keep waffling on, I met a guy called Thomas Lim who was working with Mitch Orr at, at the Duke and they were doing what uh, you in the uh, food biz like to call dude food. <laughs> and that was the hot new thing, which was young guys with big egos, not as much talent as they thought they had, doing food that was pretty shit, that looked pretty cool in really bad venues. And I just thought that was the best. And the Duke was just a fun place to you know, do your best impersonation of Marco Pierre White, you know, on his best rock star day, 
drink wines that we called natural wines back then uh, and serve pretty weird chicken wings and other stuff that really didn't even pass a staff meal uh, most of the time. And then every now and then there was an absolute gem, you know, and all those, you know, Tom's gone on to great success, so is Mitch. And you look at some of the first dishes they did and, you know, they were channeling their best, you know, um, you know, Vinny or, uh, you know, Animal or, uh, you know, Momofuku or, you know, all these great inspirations for people that were doing cool paired back food. And, you know, I thought that was great. Young people doing whatever they wanted and having hospitality come in at 3am and order, a, you know, potato gems and a oxtail gravy. That was pretty fun. And then after that, I did Pinbone because we were like, well, we can do some of this shit. So, and the rest is sort of history. You know, that's the, the rest is Pinbone. It's all documented and it's all in there. And it was all fun and it was just a, a free-for-all. But yeah, those those things, Oscillate Wildly, Dan Puskus, you know, Matt Lindsay, Gemma Wyman at Billy Kwong and then probably, you know, Thomas Lim working with him and having a good time at the Duke with Mitch Yor. That was probably the most, you know, influential parts of my young training. Well, one of my favourite things that you've done was uh, an iteration of Pinbone, which was Good Luck uh, Pinbone. Was that was that going back to those Billy Kwong days for you, that, that exploration? Yeah, 100%. That was a great collaboration between me and Jem because she was really like a master of that Szechuan-style cooking that Billy Kwong was so famous for. She'd done it for four and a half years, five years, you know, and she was just a, a real master of the, you know, seasonings and the depths of flavors and cooking on a wok and then you know i had all these kind of ideas and many of them were you know stupid some of them great and and that you know led us to that that little tiny venue which we were paying 200 dollars a week rent for and did all the renovations and built the kitchen ourselves for 20 grand bought one dollar tables from a old school and 50 cent chairs you know, did the carpeting ourselves. That was a kind of, you know, the fact that it was a dilapidated old Chinese takeaway restaurant, everything just fell into place, you know, and we just had a unbridled kind of ride, really. Like we could do whatever we wanted. Um, some of the suppliers and friends just looked after us so well. Like, you know, Johto Seafood was so good to us back then. Like they let us come down to the factory floor and, you know, rummage through all the best fish. You know, we'd take it back to the restaurant and sell it for bugger all, you know. And then, you know, people like Havrick's Meats would let us come down and they, you know, put together certain cuts or different things for us. And, you know, uh, Vinny from Vertivadura Fruit and Veg, they were great. You know, they'd come and deliver out there even though they didn't come that way. And people just really supported us and really helped us, you know. Well, a little earlier you said that, you know, fine dining wasn't really you and you really wanted to be a nonna and I guess uh, in many ways you got your chance to do that um, with Maryvale group um, obviously you have toddies right now but it, it started before that with dirty, dirty Italian disco tell us a bit about that well it was funny we got invited when we were at Good Luck Pimmo to sort of have an interview or a meeting and we weren't really like sure that we were going to join Maryvale it wasn't really in our sites and we weren't really sure what we were, what we were going to do and we were kind of umming and ahhing and then we decided we weren't going to give up the site at Good Luck Pinbone because there was just, it was dilapidated, like it was falling down and 
even though it was probably the best thing we'd ever done and the food was probably the best we'd ever cooked and it was I think to this day it'll be my favorite restaurant just the vibe and you know the way it was received like I think a big tick for us was the fact that the we only did one Christmas there but we had I think 13 different restaurants around Sydney asked to come and have their Christmas parties with us and I, I think that's like a huge tick that you know, if the whole of the industry is behind you, then you're doing something right. It could have been that we were doing free BYO and that it was just the cheapest, but I'd like to believe that it was because we had some decent food. But it could just be that, that we didn't mind if people brought their own kegs and just got fucked up and passed out on the floor. So um, anyway, we decided we were going give to give it up because we just couldn't afford to upkeep and we weren't going to make any money. And then the offer from Merivale was to come and do a project and we were kind of like, well, I don't know about this. And then they said, just come and have a look at the site. So I'd never met Justin before um, or Frank Roberts or any of the key people really. We were friends, very good friends with Jordan Toft and Daniel Alvarez and they kind of aligned the sort of meeting. So I went to the site with Gemma and my sister and it was a, a drive through bottle shop in Tennyson in the middle of nowhere. And like it was the most unmerivale thing you've ever seen. And it was just so pinbone. Like it was just so us. You know, it was like the stupidest idea. Like we're going to build a restaurant in a bottle shop drive through but keep the drive through and we want the restaurant to be on a road. And the minute we saw it, me and Jen were like, hell yeah, we're going to do this. Um, and from that, it was sort of, you know, um, just easy. You know, Justin's a really great person to work with. You know, we, we'd have an idea, he'd have an idea. And, you know, it was so foreign to us that you could come up with a, a random thing like can we drop a pizza oven in and do wood-fired stuff and build a big fire pit and all of a sudden it got done and it wasn't a case of like going onto YouTube and figuring out how to do it ourselves and then figuring out what it cost and then trying to figure out how to do it at 10% of that cost, you know. It was just a, hey, we're thinking about getting a you know, tattoo artist to tattoo the whole building and he was like, yep, cool, easy, done, you know, so... It was it was so different. It was so great. And then, you know, they were so supportive of the actual process and then, you know, so impressed with what we did that it was um, an easy decision for me to stay working with them. So, yeah, it was a, a good move on my part. Well, that was originally a pop-up and Toddy's, I guess, is the evolution of, of that original thing. But Toddy's, you know, it is a, a wonderful um, offering but you did pick a pub that was one of the roughest pubs in Sydney. It used to be my local and, um, you know, the the cage fighting used to be on in the front bar, but it wasn't on the television. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you pick that? Yeah, well, it was available and, um, you know, it was meant to be a pop-up here too. Uh, this was going to be a totally different incarnation. They were going to do a, a proper full, like, kind of remodel and rebuild and, take it down the line of like Coogee or Collaroy or Newport, you know, um, and activate more of the spaces and stuff. But um, Justin did a really honest like facelift of the front bar, like the original bars, um, you know, like when they found out that Merivale had bought it on the last night, the locals trashed the place and just like smashed all the roof tiles and just, you know, trashed it because they knew it was Merivale venue. And he brought it back up to make it look – the same. So he spent thousands of dollars on these shitty roof tiles, you know, in, in the main bars just to make sure it looked like it was before it closed. And so he kind of wanted 
to keep that dive bar field. And then before they figured out when they were going to do the renovation and what it was going to be, he asked me if I wanted to do like a dive bar pop-up. And I came, I had a look at it, and I thought, this is fucking cool. Um, you know, we were going to use this old kitchen that used to be a no-names, and it was just like horrible, small, inside a bomb shelter. Um, and he was kind of like, it's only going to be for three or four months. What can you do just using what's there? You know, what would be fun? And then I was like, yeah, that sounds really fun. You know, we were talking about doing like a Williamsburg kind of like Dumbo style dive bar food, with like sliders or, you know, really over the top kind of food that just worked well with just smashing beers and whiskey. Um, and, and then we were walking around outside and there was that hideous fountain where we were talking about how nice the courtyard was and how, what a shame it was. And then the next minute we were talking about the inside and they'd ripped out the roof you know, like the lining in the roof. And it was really nice bones. And well, I don't know how it happened, but somehow in an hour walkthrough, we'd gone from doing a dive bar in New York to talking about the Mediterranean and, you know, opening up the courtyard and putting in some nice tiles. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, we were going to do a, an Italian pop-up and we we're going to spend just a little bit of money, you know, just a little bit of money and just do a quick you know, a little kind of play on a no-names where it was going to be, you know, built around good pasta and schnitzels. And then I don't know what happened, but we spent a lot more than that. <laughs> and Toddy's was the incarnation and it just kind of snowballed. And, you know, that's the, the beauty of working with someone like Justin. He gets inspired and he gets motivated and he just gets, he gets shit done. Like he just makes things happen. And, you know, the next minute we're lifting out this disgusting old fountain and, crane was dropping in two beautiful you know mature olive trees and you know himself and his designers and his styling team like they do such a good job and the place just looks so good um and then all, all of a sudden it was a fully fledged restaurant and um we just had to hit the go button so we called it toddies and opened and it was just a raving hit from day one and you know, the, the locals have been so great to us and so supportive and, you know, what was going to be a six-month pop-up has turned into one of the best, you know, products that I've done and has now spawned a offshoot in the city and it's going to have a, a third one in Roselle. So, you know, you never know what's going to make it and what's not going to make it, but I'm so happy with the, the team we have here and the, the product we put out and just how well received it is and how much people enjoy it it's just such an easy restaurant to run you know when your customers are happy cheese it makes a difference when you started you also shared the kitchen with a legendary chef Khan Dennis. what was it like working with him it was really good it was i missed the opportunity to work at places like tetsuya and rockpool in their heyday so it was quite a you know it was quite a i'd never met Khan before we opened this and it was a um opportunity to sort of you know, work alongside someone that had been so influential to people that I had worked under previously, you know, like he'd trained Kylie Kwong and he'd trained Matt Lindsay and, you know, he'd had such an impact on those people. Um, you know, it was nice to, to see where it all came from. You know, it was a very different world than what he was used to as well, you know. So it was good. It was a weird relationship, you know, like I'm a complete nightmare to work with because I just kind of 
go off the cuff and I'm not a really a very well-trained chef. I kind of just go on instinct and I'm kind of a bit of a, not a loose cannon in a aggressive way, but just, you know, no one really knows what I'm going to do. I might just put a special on off the cuff or do something. And he's come from working with, you know, supreme professionals, or, you know, one of the greatest of all time in Neil Perry and in a really structured environment with, you know, certain ways, things that were done and, you know, so it took us took us a while to find our feet together, but you know we got there. Well, that off the cuff approach that you have has yielded amazing success, and particularly in the last couple of years, Toddy's is one of the busiest restaurants in Sydney. How would you how would you describe the food that you're doing doing there? Look, I, one of the things that all the kitchens that I run, or if I'm one of the senior people in a kitchen, is we really try to put the diner first and. You know, I, I think I got a lot of lessons early on when, you know, we were doing food that we wanted to do or that, you know, putting our ego our ego into the menu. Um, and now it's just about honouring good produce and, you know, really making sure the diner's happy and trying to be as flexible as possible uh, and being open to change and, you know, open to, you know, suggestions. Like the whole idea for the bread came about because Justin wanted to have something theatrical in the dining room because we, he decided that it was too lopsided, that the outside was too good and the inside needed something. And so he said, how about I give you a wood fire oven? And then I was like, yeah, that would work, but it's going to be very disconnected to the actual main kitchen. So, you know, we couldn't use it like a wood fire oven, like an ester, you know, because it, it wouldn't be the, the heart of the kitchen. It would be this weird offshoot. So... It needed to be something that was going to be pretty cool but also not be kind of inextricably linked to what was going on in the main production. And so once I had the oven, I just had to figure out what to come up with and then um, I thought about antipasti and bread and, you know, doing something that you take for granted when you're travelling through Europe but no one has really done, you know, to an nth degree here, you know, and I didn't want to have big platters of mixed stuff. I wanted to, again, really give the customer the, the power to choose what they wanted and to give them the flexibility. And, you know, if you're, you're a table of four and one of you is a vegan and two of you don't eat pork or, heaven forbid, um, you know, someone doesn't eat fish, you can all order without sort of making yourself feel like you're missing out or, you know, having any taboos attached to it because it's just anti-pasty dishes and they're all individuals. So... You know, you can pick and choose what you want. It gives people a sense of, you know, you know, power. But I think it also, you know, it alleviates a lot of, you know, misses, you know, because if you're going to have food where you kind of force it down people's throat or set menus or, you know, certain things they can't alter, all of a sudden you're on the, on the back foot, you know, whereas if they're only picking things that they know they like, you kind of already got yourself a head start. So... I'd say that's really the way we like to do things at Toddy's. We, you know, we work on the small things and, you know, that was the basis for Pinbone, doing the small things right. You know, if you're doing them right, people shouldn't notice them. You know, that's the whole point. That was the name of Pinbone. That's where it came from. You know, if, if someone's Pinboned a fish properly, you shouldn't even know. But if they got it wrong, you'll know. So we, I still try to keep that ethos, even though we do, you know, three to 4,000 people a week out of Bondi's kitchen. The guys and girls here 
they'll stick to that same kind of standard you know do all the little things right and then take the take the care of what the customer wants and you'll be doing all right and so far it's worked so you mentioned a little earlier your love of pigs and pork what, what's been the greatest uh, most memorable pork experience that you've had Jeez, I've had some good ones. So one of the best things I've done was actually recently uh, with Pork Stars and I got to go out and hang out on uh, a friend of mine's farm, Toluca Park, who we use a lot of their stuff here. And um, just hanging out with Frank and seeing how he, how happy he is and you know how nice it is to be around his farm full of his pigs and his chickens. That was a really great pork highlight. Cooking-wise and eating-wise, I think, you know, the best bit of pork, one of the best ones I ever had was in <laughs> in Prague on New Year's Eve and I was, was freezing cold and I stumbled across this little shack that did these pork schnitzels with this um, pork liver gravy on top in a roll and it was one of the best things I ever ate. The gravy was just epic. It was really irony and beautiful and minerally and the pork was tender and, the bread was like, it was almost like um, pretzely in its texture and flavor. So it's a great combination, a great dish. And, um, you know, but then I've had some really wonderful experiences like Singapore, you know, going out to dinner with my friends, you know, David Pint and Jason Jones and, you know, going out to have suckling pig and, you know, glass thin skin, crispy rich fat you know white rice good hoisin sauce you know you can't really beat that um and then in australia like colin fastnage i mean i I was a regular at a sunday roast down there and i remember he used to do this pork roast with a vanilla i think it was vanilla parsnip puree and man that was such a good combination you know and colin like there's not many things colin doesn't get right I mean, apart from spelling, um, you know, he's pretty, he's pretty on the ball when it comes to cooking and, you know, that was, that were pretty good moments along with the fact that it was usually all the young chefs, you know, and we were down there on a Sunday over to watch the footy, you know, flirt with the very attractive waitresses and have a great Sunday roast. You know, it was a pretty good time to be alive. Your career has been heavily influenced by Italian and Chinese and both of those good uh, amazing with with pork but do they require different cuts in those cuisines what's some of the best dishes you've done um in your career yeah so i mean chinese for me like I, i'm such a, a novice really like i love the i love the cuisine but it's such a it's i mean it's got the longest cooking history of any uh, I'd love to know more and one day I'd love to do it again. It's the, if I do start cooking before I become a farmer, I'd like to do another incarnation of a Chinese restaurant. Um, but the pork belly, obviously, like it's so versatile and so good, whether it's minced or whether it's poached, steamed, and then the ribs, like my favourite yum chart dish is the steamed pork ribs with black bean and ginger, you know, and... I got a di- like I got put onto that dish by Gemma Whiteman because when we used to do the, the red braised pork belly at Billy Kwong, you take the ribs off and then she would steam them as a staff snack, you know, with black bean and ginger. And I just remember thinking this is the best thing ever. You know, we should put it on the menu. But 
as you know, there's only so many ribs that come with each belly. So it was the chef's treat, you know. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, look, I can't go past pork belly when it comes to Chinese cookery because it's just so versatile, you know. And whether it's roast pork, you know, from, you know, a proper barbecue chef with that, you know, crispy skin, salty, five spice flavor, or whether it's been red braised and deep fried like we used to do at Billy Kwong whether it's minced and put through a sanctuary bow or, you know, or whipped up inside a wonton or a dumpling. Like it's, you know, that perfect five layer fat, flesh, fat, flesh, fat, flesh. It's pretty hard to go past that. And then for Italian cookery, like we use a lot, like the neck, the neck is so fantastic and the jowls, you know, like how can you go past those? Whether it's like cured, like Coppercolo, for the necks, you know, or if it's, you know, for the jowls cured and you've got that, you know, beautiful lardy fat, you know, but, you know, we make it into pasta sauces. You know, one of our favorite dishes here, one of the dishes we just can't take off is the milk braised pork, you know, with the rigatoni and chili and fennel. It's just such a simple dish. We get a bit of shoulder, you know, we get a bit of jowl, like the cheek, we get a bit of neck, we mince it up on a really coarse grind and, a um, little bit of belly fat in there as well. And then we braise it with chili and fennel in milk. And, you know, people just love that dish. It's been on since day one and, you know, it just makes its own beautiful gravy. It's got that deep, rich, unctuous pork flavor and that beautiful mouthfeel. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's much, um, there's any, no part of the pig that neither of those cuisines doesn't use, you know, from the trotters, you know, the ears, the tails, you know, currently, Right now in the kitchen downstairs, I just came out of the kitchen. We've got um, pig's heads braising to do a crumbed and fried sort of rillette for the weekend special. So, uh, yeah, love it. Can't go wrong. A couple of times you've mentioned schnitzel. Is there, is there a secret to you know the, the perfect pork schnitzel? Look, we use neck um, because I can't go past it for flavour. You know, I think the neck cut... So we cut them as 300 gram steaks and then we butterfly and tenderize them. And then we do a two cook. So when we get the order, we kind of cook the schnitzel and then we rest it. And then when it's away, we flash it again. Um, and for me, you get that meltingly delicious kind of pork fat that's going through the, the meat itself. So it keeps it really moist, but then it's just got so much flavor, you know, that little bit of texture. So you've got a bit of chew. And I can't stand food that's, you know, you've got teeth for a reason. I like my meat to have a little bit of a chew, you know, that mastication, get that saliva going and really taste the flavor of the food. So, um, yeah, I think aside from that, make sure you've got a good crumb. And then, you know, if you you want to take it to the next level, a quick brine as well really works. Like brining your pork always just gives it that deep, thorough seasoning and just brings up the flavor of the pork. Well, mate, I for one am glad that you didn't finish your PhD because I've had some ripping feasts from you over the years <laughs> and I've, I hope to have many more. Um, but I also wouldn't mind sharing a beer with you on the balcony of your farm one day too. I'd like that too, mate. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks for chatting to us today. Um, you're amazing and uh, your open and um, honesty is uh, extraordinary and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you very much. and. It's been great to come on and chat and hopefully I can come back and we can keep talking about pork and maybe next time we can 
do a couple of cooking challenges or something good, something the listeners will enjoy. I love that. Mate, you're a legend. Thanks so much. Cheers, mate. Thank you. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.